So today we're talking to Dimitri. Hi, Dimitri. Hello. Uh, we are going to talk about kids today. Uh, you've been on the podcast before. We talk about some other things. Uh, and um, like maybe a few words before we start. Who's Dimitri? Uh, hi, yeah. So I've been with the Clojure community for a little while now. I've um, got into using Clojure professionally fairly early. And as a result, I ended up writing some libraries and a couple of micro frameworks because mainly I needed this stuff for my own work and I realized it would be helpful to share with the community. And that's sort of how I got into doing open source development. And I realized that one of the interests I've had was like, I enjoyed working with Clojure as a language and I wanted more people to use it. And my realization was that the big barrier was kind of lack of tooling and lack of tools specifically that help beginners get into Clojure. And mm -hmm. that's sort of what I ended up specializing with. So a lot of my libraries and frameworks mm -hmm. kind of like just make Clojure a bit nicer and easier to use for right. newcomers. Right. And you also wrote a book or a couple of books by this time uh, about doing web development with Clojure, right? Yeah, I have. Uh, so the first uh, book I wrote was basically talking about how to structure Clojure web apps around Luminous Micro Framework mm -hmm. I built. And then uh, I wrote a revision with Scott Brown, who added uh, some front-end uh, examples using Reframe and Reagent. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, and then I guess, I guess out of this, uh, so the Luminous was the framework you mentioned, uh, out of this came out uh, Kit. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And that actually ended up being a collaboration project as well with uh, Nicola Perik, who mm -hmm. he started actually using Clojure with Luminous, but then mm -hmm. through his career, he kind of developed a few of his own opinions on how to structure apps. And he started making a template for his own use. And then we talked with him about it and we realized we could improve on that and kind of like make it a public template for the community that could uh, iterate on what Luminous was doing. Mm -hmm. And I think like a couple of big differences uh, with Kit and Luminous would be that Kit sort of takes a lot of lessons learned from Luminous mm -hmm. and which is like has been around for a while now and the way I think the structure closure apps changed a bit right. since Luminous was built. Some of the tooling changed, some of the core libraries changed, and Kit kind of incorporates a lot of that and modernizes basically what Luminous was trying to do. Right. But on top of it, Kit also has one useful feature, which has always been a pain point for me personally in Luminous, mm -hmm. was that once you make a project, uh, it generated from a template and then you know if you need to add something to that project you're kind of on your own so mm -hmm. let's say you made a basic app and now you're going it's like oh you know i'd like to add a database well now luminous can't help you now you have to you know do all the plumbing and all the boilerplate by hand mm -hmm. and that's always kind of been a problem even for me personally because i'd often like make a template thinking i'll need one type of project and then it evolves and I'm like oh i actually would like to add some front-end stuff to it now mm -hmm. and now you know i have to do all the all the work and i really wanted to address that and mm -hmm. this is the one part that kit adds on top of luminous is that once you build your project or once you instantiate your project you can now add templates 
to an existing project. And basically, mm -hmm. that's all done using uh, rewrite CLJ and rewrite Eden. Mm -hmm. And the assumption this makes is that basically you have the basic project structure that, Lumina, uh, that Kit creates. Mm -hmm. And you can make a template that will generate the new assets associated with whatever you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. Plus, it's going to inject some code or whatever else into the existing files based on specific rules. Mm -hmm. And two nice aspects of that are that templates can now be added at any time. So if you know you make like a very basic project and then you say it's like, oh, now I would like to add some front-end stuff. Now I'd like to add a database or a queue or whatever. You can now get this kind of canned boilerplate into the project very easily. And then you mm -hmm. can still customize it because it's just part of your project at that point. Right. But the other nice part is the templates are just a GitHub repo. And there is an official repo mm -hmm. that's curated by myself and a few other people mm -hmm. that provides us official templates. But anybody can just make their own repo, mm -hmm. edit their project config, and now have like their own private template that does whatever they want to do. So nice. now they're not restricted, right? Like by whatever Kit officially provides. Mm -hmm. And this can be like especially useful, like let's say, you know, you have like maybe like some code you have private that you're doing for your own project or for a company internally. You can now kind of make these modules on top of Kit for your internal project and use them yourself. Nice. Mm -hmm. So um, just like a step back. So if I create a Lum uh, Luminous, if I create a Kit project now, it's uh, it's I'm using CLI, some kind of a CLI, right, to create this. Uh, is this using? Is there a specific tool? Is there like Kit CLI, or do I use any combination of like Debs Eden or anything like this? How does that work? Okay, yeah, good question. So everything just works through Depsidon. There are mm -hmm. some convenience uh, done through Babashka scripts to do like mm -hmm. common tasks like you know making the REPL, compiling, and so right. on. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like the goal with Kit is to stick as close to official tooling as possible. Mm -hmm. And so it's Depsidon, you know, closure tools built for building yeah. stuff. And then there is like just an extra Kit Eden file that keeps track of Eden specific metadata in the project. And mm -hmm. that's basically the only part that's really Kit specific. Right. Right. That makes sense. And then whenever I want to add new module, I will use again as another comment with like Debs Eden and then it just bolted on the top of whatever I have, right? Exactly. Yeah. Right. So this sounds very similar uh, to how sort of I remember the Rails used to work. You would have the CLI tool that you would say, oh, you know, I want to add maybe this gem or I want to add something like this. How similar do you see Kit uh, being close to Rails? Um, so in a way, it's sort of anti-Rails. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because um, I guess like now we could talk a little bit about different philosophies for mm -hmm structuring applications. So yeah. Rails is really like what we'd call a full-blown framework where mm -hmm. it makes all the decisions for you. It's standardized. There's like a lot of components that are already built in that are pluggable. And really what you do is you just kind of fill in the parts of the application that are really business logic specific to your app. Mm -hmm. And I think the advantage of such frameworks is that because it's so standardized, it's very easy to find documentation on it. Everybody does everything the same way because it's the same template effectively and right, like the same structure, same libraries. Um, and that's kind of like the benefit, right? Like it's it's sort of easy to get started. It's, there's a big community around it. Uh, it's easy to find resources 
whereas, you know, like standardized ways right. of solving problems. Um, but there's also downsides to this approach because uh, Rails has to be all things to all people in a sense. Mm-hmm. It, it sort of has to be this lowest common denominator that will work for any kind of app because Rails doesn't really know what kind of app you're going to be building. Mm-hmm. And so if you're building one type of app, you kind of inadvertently end up inheriting all the baggage that's maybe needed for a different kind of app, but that mm-hmm. needs to be in Rails for Rails to function and to be kind of very general purpose. The other problem with Rails is because it provides so much functionality out of the box, it is complex. You have this sort of like, right, like it's the whole thing like Richika talks about a lot, easy versus simple. Rails is easy. It's it's very easy to get started. You do some, you know, like magic incantations right. and stuff happens. You right, like you write a one-liner and you get a controller and you get a database ORM and you get a root and like all those things. Right. But to really understand what's happening takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. So mm-hmm. In cases where you actually need to understand what Rails is doing and why it's doing it, that's that's a much more difficult task. And, of course, if your project starts diverging from what Rails developers envisioned, then you're really in trouble because now you're really kind of swimming upstream at that point. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of like one end, right? That's sort of like where Rails is. And then there is the other end that's sort of been traditional enclosure community where we just don't do any frameworks, right? Like we keep it as simple as possible. We don't necessarily make it easy. And, you know, you pick your own routing library, you pick your own HTTP server, your own everything. And then your project ends up being exactly as you want it. It solves, right? Like it does exactly what you need. Nothing more, nothing less. And it can be very efficient. It can be like very easy to understand because there's few layers in it. There's probably not a lot of additional complexity that doesn't need to be there. But the cost of that is you really have to know Clojure well to do this well because right. you have to know what libraries to use, right? Like right. how to use them effectively, how to structure your Clojure applications effectively. And if you're new to Clojure, that's kind of a problem because you don't really know all those things and that can take right. you a lot of time to get ramped up. And so stuff like Luminous and Kit uh, solve or attempt to solve this problem. They say, you know, if you're going to keep the community approach that closure uh, developers like, which is to keep things light, to keep things mm-hmm. in the hands of the developer, not to make too many assumptions about things, mm-hmm. but they'll provide you with a template that creates that initial application structure for you so you don't have to think about it. We'll make some decisions for you, for example, how to manage stateful resources, mm-hmm. what HTTP router to use, right? Like how to connect to a database, do migrations, all those common tasks that almost every closure app will have mm-hmm. are kind of hand- handled for you so you don't really have to make those decisions. And then you get the starter project that's very light, and then you can build on it, right? And you can either go with the way Kit structures it for you, or if you want to diverge from that, you know, nothing's stopping you. It's your project mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like, right, like, I guess the middle ground approach between having a full-blown framework and having to do everything yourself. You can kind of assemble libraries into a template and then provide a template coupled with good documentation around the template. Mm-hmm. So Kit and Luminous both kind of have two aspects to them. One is the actual template that lets you instantiate the project. And the second aspect is the website that provides comprehensive docs of how to use 
all the components. So, you, you know, like, if you want to know how to build routes, connect to database, do caching, authentication, you know, you go to one place and now you get comprehensive documentation, which I think is actually another aspect that's undervalued maybe in the Clojure community, in my opinion, is that we often don't have docs in a centralized, consistent place. Mm-hmm. You often end up finding blog posts from people or individual libraries, and they you know, may have readmes, and the quality of the readmes can vary mm-hmm. wildly. And it, it's a bit of a problem, in my opinion, because... Again, like if you're starting new, right? Like you're probably going to Google how do I do something in Clojure and you're going to see like 20 different blog posts and right. some are up to date, some aren't. And like it takes a lot of effort on the part of the developer, on the user to actually sift through that and find something that works. Right. And I feel it's especially daunting, right? Like when you're new to the language and you don't know yeah. what the best practices are. and it takes a bit of time to get into the understand the ecosystem, understand libraries, understand mm-hmm. how you do things. Also, especially if you're coming from object-oriented reality, it takes a lot of time to switch to the functional programming. Uh, so yeah, there's definitely a lot of things uh, that you need to sort of work on to get to the point where you can put an app together, right? Uh, so talking about putting an app together, so Kit, uh, so from your description, I take is Kit is helping you uh, to start with an application, it will give you a template, it will give you some kind of a folder structure. Uh, it will put things in the places, you can always add more things as you go. Um, and what else, like, what did you learn by like building the applications over the years? And what do you see, I don't know, some pitfalls that people sometimes fell into? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So I think the biggest pitfall I see people fall into is designing for future problems. And I think that's a tendency for us as developers to just do that. Yagni. When, right, like we start building an app and we're like, oh, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if, you know, something else happens? And you add all this complexity up front to solve those hypothetical problems you think you might have. Mm-hmm. And by that, you actually create a problem for yourself, like an actual tangible problem of having all this complexity now. And I've seen mm-hmm. like many projects I worked with where I've done that, like I've done this myself and I've seen other people do it, where you just start solving all those problems that you don't actually have. Mm-hmm. Like you think it's like, oh, what if I'm going to need to scale this and I better add some caching and I better do this and that, right? Mm-hmm. And then it becomes kind of fragile because you have all these moving pieces in your project that you don't actually need, but that you have to keep in your head. And then like when you're adding features, they might now like collide with like decisions you've made and so on. And so my biggest advice for people is to just, you know, solve, like, really try to figure out upfront, like, what problem you have. And that's kind of like part of that, like, whole hammock-driven development where, you know, Mm -hmm. like, just stop and think, Mm -hmm. identify what you're trying to do, and just solve that problem in the simplest way possible. Right. Like, don't don't think about, like, you know, like, what if, what if, what if. Just, like, do the thing you actually need to do. And I can guarantee that that's probably going to be, like, the more efficient solution than whatever you would have come up with if you were like trying to solve hypotheticals. Mm-hmm. Um, I think another advice I would give is to keep your infrastructure simple. Like again, there is often this tendency to add a lot of moving pieces to the infrastructure. Like let's use Kubernetes, right? Let's let's add Dynamo. Let's add do let's do this. Let's do that. 
And then you realize, you know, you don't actually need this stuff, but now, again, like it makes, you know, your login complex, it makes your uh, services complex, now you have a lot of dependencies to watch out mm -hmm. for that could go down, that could break, right? And the last stuff you have, like for a lot of apps I worked on, like just having a single Postgres was good enough. Right. And even when the app grew and scaled, it was still just a single Postgres instance and it worked fine. Mm -hmm. So do you also mean uh, this in a way of like deployment to the production or do you mean like the setup with just, I mean, I think it goes hand in hand. The more you add, the more you need to configure, the more you need to like work on your deployment. Uh, but I yeah. like, what's the, what's the recommendation for the deployment story? I think again, like uh, I recommend keeping, especially like if you're not like it depends for people, right? Like some people are really good with ops, some people aren't. I mm -hmm. think like using like a provisioned solution, like even something like Heroku, right? Like where you already just push up code, it builds and everything's managed for you. Go with that, right? Like right. a lot of services nowadays, they're like very competitively priced. Uh, they'll provide, you know, like managed Postgres for you. So mm -hmm. You can run like your Docker, like usually, right? Like it's really, you just have a Docker file and you have a jar in it. The jar starts up, you connect to your Postgres or whatever and off you yeah. go, right? So like, don't build your own tooling around that, like unless you really have to and you probably right. want. <laughs> right. Um, what about building the application itself? Is there, and so if we will look at the application, or in this case, we're looking at Kit, um, are there any recommendations for the backend? And maybe oh, let's just split this, like, I don't know, backend and frontend, and maybe we can just tackle them one by one. Yeah, for sure. So I, I think like uh, you already get a sense that I'm a big fan of Postgres for <laughs> all your database yeah. needs. Um, I find, yeah, like for backend, in most cases, I find you kind of, you want to have a database for kind of like your storage rate on your persistence layer. You're going to have your service. You may want to have some queues, and queues are useful because um, one really important part for I find for a lot of apps is data integrity. Well, or I'd say it's probably the most important part. You never want to lose data, and you never want to get your data in a bad state if you can mm -hmm. help it. And I think like a good pattern that I found uh, is you, when the incoming data comes in, dump it into a queue, and then consume from that queue. And then if anything goes wrong in your application, then at least you still have your data in the queue, right? And you mm -hmm. can like, you can do replays, you can do rollbacks and so on. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important part, right? Because if you just like consume from your HTTP and goes into your app and your server crashes, now you lost whatever stake you had in there, right? If, if you're feeding from a queue, then you're like in a much safer scenario. So you're thinking, we were thinking about some kind of external queue, not the one, for example, not some kind of, closure persistent queue or anything like this you're thinking yeah, yeah, about yeah like, like just some buffer effectively before stuff gets into your app like uh, uh, what is it uh, in aws there's a server um, is it sqs yeah one yeah, of yeah. those and there, mm -hmm. yeah there's like a whole bunch of them right like mm -hmm. but it, it really doesn't matter in my opinion which one like rabbit is another popular one and right mm -hmm. like just pick one, right, and just feed stuff into it. So basically, the idea is like you get a HTTP request from somewhere. I assume you're doing HTTP, grab that request, dump it in the queue, and then have something that is the consumer for that. Pick it up from the queue and then write it to a database. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So that that's kind of like for services. I would say 
that those are like the key components, right? Like you have your service, you have your database, you have your queue. Um, I would say like in most cases for closure apps, I wouldn't reach for a microservice architecture right away mm-hmm. because it introduces its own complexity. Like once you have multiple services, now you have to coordinate the services. It makes local development more difficult because now you have to run the services together and you have to right, like set up all the ports. You might have to set up authentication between the services because right. now they have to talk to each other. And just like you're saving, like usually the idea with microservices and I feel like the problem it solves in traditional languages, like if you're doing Python or Ruby or something, is that you're just trying to create those hard boundaries. You're dealing with mutable data. It's very easy to create coupling via shared state. So people just say, you know what? Like, we're just going to break the app up into separate things, and you can't share a state between them. You're going to pass data. Mm-hmm. But of course, in the closure world, we don't really have that problem. And you can sort of treat each namespace as a microservice if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. So in terms of architecture, I definitely recommend following microservice architecture in terms of breaking your application up into independent components mm-hmm. that you can reason about without thinking about the rest of the application. But in terms of actual like structure of the application, I would like just deployment. keep it all... Yeah. yeah, exactly, right? Like just bundle it together in the jar and just run your jar and you're going to be happier. All right. Um, you can also pull stuff out. Like I find like with depths especially because you can just have like a local folder for libraries. You can kind of like start pulling stuff out that you think could be like general purpose into a library. But I would do it sort of after the fact. Like once you notice something that's reusable and you actually have a need for that. Yeah. You can do mm-hmm. those strategies. All right. So I guess the only only one piece of, um, if you will, additional thing that you would recommend for an app would be this queue. And then apart from that, it will be HTTP and then database, uh, database layer, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Right. So uh, do you have any recommendations for people coming to Clojure that are not so familiar with uh, maybe functional programming and how mm-hmm. they can, you know, tackle the starting to build backend application? So I have Kit, I started my template. Like, how do I start? Like, what are the recommendations for writing, I don't know, functions and structuring my, my, my code, you know? Yeah, that's that's a good question. So... I think like my biggest recommendation is uh, how you to think about how you deal with state, and that, that's something we tend to kind of take for granted as functional programmers. Mm-hmm. But it, it is like I think the biggest change from an imperative language, where you often pass some mutable data around and you tweak that data as it goes through the system, and then you do sort of this like in-place updates to your state. Whereas with us, we tend to create a pipeline of functions and you pass your data through that set of functions and you get some result back. Mm -hmm. But I think like in practical terms, it's really not that different in most cases. So I think like the other aspect, like once they like, yeah, do think about it, but to like don't get paralyzed by it. Just kind of, you know, start solving your problem. And like I said earlier, just, don't try to get too clever with it. Mm-hmm. So in most cases, um, like in a lot of languages, you have, for example, OR apps, mm-hmm. where you have your database and you have like object model, and then you have like some complex library that maps between your object graph and your database. Um, and there is kind of 
tendency to build a sort of abstractions. And I think like my recommendation would be just done, right? Like mm-hmm. treat your data like you have your database, uh, like in most web apps, right? Like your life cycle is going to be, you're going to get some requests. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a map of data. You're going to look at the data and based on the, on what's in the request, you're going to decide to pull some data from somewhere, probably a database mm-hmm. or a different service or whatever, you're going to get that result back, do something with it, and then return the response, right? And that's kind of like that life cycle of your request handler. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I realized is that you generally want to just keep the data that you get from external sources as is. Like, don't, don't mess with it unless you actually need to. Okay. And then you can potentially add stuff like, right, like a Molly schema at the edges to validate that data. So then... You know, you got your request, uh, you validate it against the schema to make sure it has the stuff you expect in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, like, do some coercion to, like, you know, like, parse ints or dates or whatever you need to do. And then, like, now you have this data and you have the schema, so now you know the shape of it. And as long as you don't change the shape of the data, it becomes, like, very easy to know what it looks like. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you do whatever transformations you need to do with the data, and then you're going to write it at the other end to mm-hmm. your database or wherever else it needs to go, mm-hmm. and may, or maybe get some data, right, like, again, from the other end, from the database, and same thing, mm-hmm. right, like, do some validation on it if you need to, and then pass it back. And I think, like, the reality is that most, up, like, service separation handlers end up being very simple enclosure. Mm-hmm. Like, if, if you do it right, like, it's, it's kind of like one thing you can kind of look for. If, if you feel like it's whatever you're doing is starting to get unreasonably complex, that's probably time to stop and kind of like rethink it. Because mm-hmm. in most cases, it, it, it should be really light in terms of code and like easy to follow. So if, if you're mm-hmm. finding yourself doing something that feels too complicated, it probably is. Mm-hmm. And it's probably a, a good time to kind of like take a rain check and maybe right. try to explore different approaches. Right, so avoid um, complexity. I guess it's easier said than done. Um, is there any other things that people should avoid while writing applications? Um, I think like one big difference is you want to keep your functions like really short. I find like good closure functions usually like five to ten layers of code, and mm-hmm. you can do a lot in ten lines of closure. So I yeah. find like when you write Java or something, you you often have right like hundred line functions. That's that's fairly common. And like in Clojure, that's a whole namespace. Right. <laughs> like so breaking stuff up and making this like small single responsibility functions is a mm-hmm. really good way to stay sane. Mm-hmm. Right. And again, like right, like focus on that whole data transformation aspect. Like don't try to try to keep your state at the edges. Mm-hmm. And basically, you might have, right, like, again, like, in the context of request handler, you, you'll get a request, maybe you aggregate some state in the handler itself, and then from there, you start calling out to this kind of pure functions that just accept some data, maybe do some transformation, get you some new data back, and mm-hmm. then chaining them together. And maybe that's another thing to kind of discuss, right, that there's sort of two types of code in the application. There's code that cares about the specific data, the values in it, and then there's code that sort of just does routing of your data. Because mm-hmm. a lot of time, like, let's say, you know, like a user tries to do an action, and you might want to check, oh, is this user logged in? Is the user authorized, right? Like, are they allowed mm-hmm. to do this action? 
Um, is action valid in the context of the data that we have and so on? And all this does, right? Like, it's just there's this decision graph in your code that decides what actually needs to be done and what's valid to be done. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, decoupling that code from what the actual data transformations are going to be or side effects are going to be is really useful because you kind of want to be able to think about the flow mm-hmm. without thinking about the implementation details. So kind of like try to put your implementation details in the functions and at the high level just have like this graph of functions that describe what, like what you're trying to do kind of like semantically okay. at a high level. Right. Um, so I guess this will be good recommendations for the backend and doing your logic, if you will. Uh, what about the front end? Right. And I think like a lot of the stuff applies to front end as well. But I guess like in the closure world, uh, my most of my experience is using stuff like reframe. Mm-hmm. And I find with a reframe, you can sort of think about it again as in very similar terms as you would of the request handler on the server. Because on the server, right, like we have some HTTP routes and then the root gets hit, mm-hmm. we execute the handler, it does some work and returns some data. With reframe, we can think about the reframe to be as sort of kind of like the server, right? Yeah. And then we have dispatches and subscriptions. Mm-hmm. So it's really, in my opinion, similar to the MVC model, where you have, right, like your database, reframe database is your model, uh, your subscriptions are your views. Those mm-hmm. are the projections of the model that produce kind of like data that you're going to render in the UI. And yeah. then the dispatches are your controllers. This is where the data or input comes in and modifies mm-hmm. the state of a DB. And if you right, think right. of that loop, you basically, you have your page, it has some interactive elements. When the user interacts with your interactive elements, they're going to trigger some dispatches. Those dispatches are going to modify the state of the database, and then you subscribe to the changes in the state and then repaint the UI. And that's basically right. the loop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Which is, I guess, like another comparison to the Rails model, how, how it works. And so if you're familiar with Laravel Rails, you should be pretty quick in terms of like catching up how Reframe works. And for those that don't know, Reframe is a framework for writing uh, single-page applications. And the Reframe actually stands for Reagent Framework. And the Reagent is just a wrapper around React. So um, The, the right. rabbit hole goes deep. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Uh, but I guess, you know, in this case, we are using Hiccup, which is our representation of HTML. So it's all data um, uh, for, of course, for the re- uh, React slash uh, MD- so MDX, I guess we have Hiccup. Uh, that will be the comparison, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like another thing that's worth mentioning nowadays is yeah. the other approach that we've now seen becoming kind of popular is HTMX. Yeah. And... Mm-hmm. I think like while I, like while it's wildly different from reframe and doing your SPA front end, I think conceptually it's actually not all that different because what we're doing with HTMX is we're saying our front end is just a dumb view. It doesn't have any logic in it. It just has some HTML. And then we have all those controllers that get triggered by user actions when they interact right. with this UI. Again, right, like we get some input from a user. We dispatch some actions, and then at the right. end, we render a new view. Instead of like rendering uh, in JavaScript, we just render it on the back end, and we just send a piece of HTML to patch in back in the page. Right. But you can really use sort of that same um, 
understanding of like reframe or rails or so on with HTMX. I, I do believe actually HTMX originally comes from uh, hot. What was it called? I forget, I forget the name of Rails. Hotwire. Yes, that's it. Yeah. Right. So yeah, I I, I also feel like HTMX is not a new idea, and I think uh, what HTMX does it. Uh, it's, so it's all server side uh, rendered, right? So you don't have right. you don't have Clojure script, you don't have JavaScript. It's all generated with Clojure and Clojure data structures, and then you just send the request. As you mentioned, something is triggered, and we send back a new, I guess, HTML snippet to replace the old one. Yeah, exactly, and um, and I think like it, it has a lot of advantages because it simplifies your workflow drastically because now you have like a single REPL, you just right. have one runtime for the whole app, right? and uh, you don't need to coordinate between front and back end to deal with stuff like, right, like Ajax right. calls or WebSockets or... Right. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And I think it's kind of interesting, right? Like if you kind of like zoom out historically, there's sort of been this pendulum swing between uh, thin and thick clients. Mm-hmm. So if you like people who are like really old will remember stuff like mainframes, Mm-hmm. And with the mainframe, right? Like you had a big computer sitting somewhere in the server room, and you yeah. have a dump terminal that connects to it, and you just send inputs to the computer, it executes and like prints to the screen. Right. Then we kind of had this PC revolution where computing became really cheap. All of a sudden, you know, you could have uh, rich applications running locally, and we started seeing like more and more stuff moving to the client side. Right. Correct. Yeah. And, and then I feel like now we're kind of like going back right to this like, well, you know, we can do a lot of the stuff on the server and now the client can become this like dumb terminal UI again. And that's right. basically yeah. what HTMX is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it also depends a lot on uh, on your application uh, because I feel like if you really have a very rich uh, front end application, um, the sooner you start to switch to like SPA, uh, probably the easier it will get in the long run. Uh, because you still need this, you know, JavaScript at one point or whatever, whatever library that you need to tap into. Uh, so yeah, I guess it all depends on the use case. You know, I, I would not say one is better or the other. It depends what kind of trade-offs you want to take. Yeah, I completely agree. Right, that's the case of kind of like a right tool for the job. And right. I, I think like the decision where you make uh, whether you use one or the other is really how much client-side state you have per user. Right. Yeah. And and I think like that that's the other thing like worth mentioning. The the one advantage SPAs do have is that they allow you to keep your server completely stateless. And mm-hmm. A, you're like amortizing the work of rendering the UI and interacting yeah. with the UI across all your users because right. each user now has it running locally in their browser. Right. And now you can scale horizontally trivially because like if you need to spin up more instances, you just, you know, you don't have any state to worry about. Right. So that's a big great right, like disadvantage if you use something like HTMX, because now you do have to keep your server state per user. And now you right. have to have successions and all the all those things, right? And right. I do think that uh there's sort of like I've seen fear of SPAs in a lot of developer communities. Right. But from what I've seen, it actually comes from just poor tooling around SPAs. Mm-hmm. Whereas I would say Clojure actually has fairly top-notch SPA tooling. Like if you're using something like Reframe with yeah. Shadow CLGS, it works really, really well. Yeah. And absolutely. it meshes with the server trivially because you have like same way you would have like with uh 
JavaScript front-end, back-end, where you just use the same language on both ends and you can use JSON to ship data around. Uh, Clojure gives you Eden, which is even better than JSON Tran because it's... Transit, yeah. Right. Exactly, or transit, yeah, like if yeah. you're encoding that way. Uh, and you get like rich data structures you can share between front-end and back-end that's extensible and right. it, it works really, really well. But you do have to be careful that also if you're intending to interact with other clients that might not be written closure then don't marry yourself to like again like it, it goes back to what we talked about earlier about adding complexity and yeah. i've seen people get themselves into trouble where they create all of those transit specific types that work great with a closure app but then you try to expose it to a client that's written a different language and that doesn't really work so well yes pick the right tool for the job exactly yeah and don't get too clever up front <laughs> Right, right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I think there is a lot of uh, a lot of discussion regarding like the SPA and now going back, as you mentioned, to server side rendering or uh, there are those terms like S uh, servers SSR. Uh, what is the other one? Um, client side rendering, which is of course the client side, and then there is there is one more. I just uh, skip my mind, which is not really rendering, uh, but it's like prepared HTML and just serve it to the client like on the CDN. So it's not really mm -hmm. any kind of dynamic, but, uh, and then, and I feel like a lot of time, uh, when we write SPAs, the expectations are that they need to work just like server side render HTML. They are just instant yet. You know, if you ever open like any app on iPhone or Android, you always have the splash screen yet. When we see this on the, on the web, we just like, why is this loading? Like it's the web. <laughs> It's supposed to work just with a snatch of a finger, uh, which is sometimes funny. So I think sometimes we also need to take into account this. Some applications really need to load. You need to send a bit of JavaScript to the front end, and then the browser needs to parse it. And then only then it will be displayed. Uh, yet sometimes we have those, um, I, I would say, unvalid expectations that HTML applications should always be instant and they should never load. So I guess it depends. Uh, depends on the app. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, there is kind of like a difference between a website and an application. Right. Like a right. website is mostly static text that's documents and maybe right. like, with, you know, you have some minimal yeah. interaction like navigation or something. Um, an app is really, like you said, it's an app. It's no different than an app that runs on the phone or a computer. And you shouldn't have same expectations for an app and a site and like, like something like Gmail, for example, like it's a full blown application. It's complex. Right. It's it's yeah. big, and right, like right. right, like you can't just have all that load like instantly. Right, right, right. Uh, cool. Um, so if you are interested in learning about Kit, how to build the applications with Kit, uh, Dimitri is going to uh, run a workshop together with Jen. Uh, this will be run on the closure stream. Uh, there is more information in the show notes. Uh, so if you'll be up for that, um, Dimitri will be there for you to teach you how to write applications in Clojure. So if you're either coming from maybe ClojureScript or if you're or ClojureScript, if you're coming from Rails and want to explore Clojure, or if you're a Clojure developer interested in Kit, uh, this will be something definitely you could check out. Uh, would you have any words about the workshop? Oh yeah, sure. Uh, so basically, um, the idea behind the workshop is really to help people get started with structuring applications and to kind of like figure out those initial pain points that I've seen people run into when they build apps and they're not really sure how to um, 
choose the architecture for the application, which components to use, how to wire it all up together. And I think like getting this right out of the door will make your life a lot easier and will mm-hmm. make you a lot happier as you're working in your application. Yeah. And this is basically what the workshop is going to focus on. Just like, what are the pain points, what you should watch out for, what are the good practices, mm-hmm. and sort of what are the community best practices in Clojure today that mm-hmm. actually, like, in my experience and Jen's experience, have actually allowed us to build real applications that we shipped. Cool. Uh, very nice. I really look forward to this. Um, so, yeah, uh, great. Uh, thanks a lot for your time. And then, again, if you're interested in work- workshop, take a look at the show notes and probably you will hear about, about this on some other channels. And, yeah, thanks again, Dimitri. Uh, thank you for, t- for taking the time, talking about Kit. And I'll catch you next time. Thanks for having me and take care. Yeah.